just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Well, I got such a kick out of doing a quick review of some key points on the 2022 North American Menopause Society's clinical update for hormone therapy that I told the team, wait, I don't want to leave this topic just yet because there's yet another clinical dilemma that I'm sure happens in clinical practice. So here's this next question answered in the 2022 review that we're going to answer. Ready? Here's the question. Would you give hormone therapy to a known BRCA patient? I mean, you obviously wouldn't do that, right? I mean, she's got BRCA. Well, it's not that easy. Yep, spoiler alert. Yep, you definitely can. So let's cover the 2022 North American Menopause Society about the use of hormone therapy in women with genetic risk factors for breast cancer. And we're not going to stop there. What about vaginal therapy in women with a known history of breast cancer? Is that allowed? We'll cover these things right now in this session. Hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome is caused most commonly by germline pathogenic variants in one of the autosomal dominant DNA repair genes. We all know them as BRCA1 and BRCA2. But there's other genes that get less limelight but are equally responsible for hereditary breast cancer. Some of these other genes like CDH1 or CHEK2 are considered actionable for their increased breast cancer risk, but there's insufficient evidence for a clear increased risk for ovarian cancer, unlike the risk that's associated with both BRCA mutations. Other genes like BRIP1 or RAD51C are associated with an increased ovarian cancer risk, but not necessarily an increased breast cancer risk. So relationship goes both ways. Although most cases of breast cancer and ovarian cancer in the U.S. are sporadic, pathogenic BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations account for about 5 up to 15% of these types of cancers. Pathogenic variants in BRCA2 also can be associated with pancreatic cancer and even melanoma. Don't forget that men are not immune to this issue either. In men, pathogenic variants in BRCA2 have been associated with breast cancer and prostate cancer. So it's important to ask about male and female relatives and about maternal and paternal ancestry. Now, this just goes back to your genetics class, all right? If you think that that thing's just super rare, I'm never going to see a BRCA patient. Man, they're in my population. I'm sure they're in yours as well. The carrier frequency of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome is about one in 500 individuals in the general population. And if your patient population is predominantly made up of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, remember that that prevalence goes up to one in 40 individuals. It's pretty darn high. So how is this tied into what we're talking about? Well, these numbers are not necessarily small, and that's why we have to be aware of these things, because it's not unusual for a patient to come to your office and go, look, I'm BRCA positive, here's where we're at. Plus, remember things like Ancestry or 23andMe and all these at-home DNA tests are now finding these things out, whereas otherwise we would never have known. 
Well, these patients are also going to go through menopause and are going to have vasomotor symptoms. And so should they be left to struggle and suffer by themselves? Are we giving them an increased risk of breast cancer by writing them for hormone therapy? Well, what does the data show? Well, this was addressed again in the 2022 NAMS new clinical update that just came out in the summer. So let's talk about that. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. According to the North American Menopause Society, observational evidence suggests that hormone therapy use does not further increase the relative risk of breast cancer in women with a family history of breast cancer, in women after oophorectomy for BRCA1 or 2 genetic variants, or in women having undergone benign breast biopsies. A prospective longitudinal cohort study of BRCA1 genetic variant carriers without prior history of breast cancer who underwent bilateral oophorectomy also showed no increased risk of developing breast cancer that was associated with any use of hormone therapy after a mean follow-up of about 7.6 years. Now, here's the catch. There was a difference, however, between estrogen therapy and estrogen progestin therapy with a non-significant increase in breast cancer risk associated with estrogen progestin therapy. We've addressed that before, and we just talked about that in the law in the last podcast. Estrogen therapy alone compared to estrogen and progestin therapy is a totally different thing. It's apples to oranges. Remember WHI, even though that study only focused on conjugated equine estrogen and medroxyprogesterone acetate, it was that combination that did have that higher relative risk of breast cancer. So remember, shortest duration possible for the lowest dose possible, and also try to stick with other options that aren't CEE or MPA. Now, that is scary. I'll tell you that much, right? I mean, it is scary. However, remember the key word that we just focused on, a non-significant increase in breast cancer with estrogen progestin therapy. And again, that's not my words. That's right out of the 2022 NAMS clinical update. All in all, if you're ever asked about use of hormone therapy in BRCA patients, just remember this take-home clinical pearl. The absolute risk of breast cancer is low in women with genetic variants who undergo risk-reducing bilateral oophorectomy at a young age and use hormone therapy and it's considered acceptable. Now the question is, well, what if they haven't undergone bilateral oophorectomy at a young age? Well, 
Again, it's all about personalization of treatment. And remember that before you just say, oh, absolutely not, I'm not going to do it. There's more to it than that because a lot rides on the types of hormones used, the dose, and the route of administration. All right, listen up because I'm going to drop some clinical pearls on you right now regarding those three issues, types of hormones, dose, and route of administration. Some, but not all, observational data suggests that micronized progesterone and dihydrogesterone may have a lesser association with breast cancer, whereas other synthetic progestins like MPA, remember that's Provera, may have a more adverse effect. So the clinical pearl is very easy. Not all progestins are the same, and nor is their effect on the breast. Now, although some preclinical data suggested that conjugated equine estrogen, CEE, may have less effect on occult breast cancer than, say, estradiol, other observational studies have not found a difference. So it seems that the progestin matters, but not so much the type of estrogen. Now, regarding the route, both oral and transdermal estrogen appear to have similar effects on the number of breast cancers diagnosed, whereas vaginal estrogens have no effect. Did y'all get that? Vaginal estrogens have no effect on breast cancer. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a minute, but just wanted to open up that discussion right now. There's also growing evidence that newer types of therapies that can be combined with conjugated estrogens are safe as well, like bazidoxifene, okay? Bazidoxifene, or BZA, antagonizes both breast cancer development as well as estrogen-related changes in the female reproductive tract, that means the uterus, based on its mode of action. So BZA plus conjugated estrogen, although we don't have a lot of evidence now, it is growing that its safety seems to be there regarding breast health. Now, we've just covered information about hormone therapy in BRCA patients without breast cancer. And let's just move on to the next part of that discussion. What about in patients with a history of breast cancer? Now, we all get this, right? Although systemic use of hormone therapy in survivors of breast cancer is generally not advised. Listen, if symptoms of estrogen deficiency are so bad and are so unresponsive to non-hormonal options, then women can and their healthcare providers in consultation with their oncologist can choose a hormone therapy after being fully informed about the risks and benefits. Now, my personal perspective, I don't feel comfortable with that. Breast cancer scares me. But once again, according to NAMS and ACOG, look, it's all about patients' informed consent and quality of life. And if you choose, once again, the type that seems to be more benign to the breast and at the lowest dose for the shortest duration, it may have some value. But I have to be very clear. In general, it is not advised to use hormone therapy in survivors of breast cancer. Now, although systemic therapy is, in general, no-go in women with breast cancer, in general, what about vaginal atrophy treatment? Look, genital urinary syndrome of menopause is terrible. I mean, they can't have sex, they have vaginal dryness, the vagina burns, and quality of life is affected. Are you going to tell them, now? just don't worry about it, go use some vaginal lubricants or some vaginal lubricators, you'll be fine. Well, wait a minute, what does the data show? Well, the data is actually pretty reassuring for a vaginal estrogen therapy. 
Low-dose vaginal estrogen therapy remains an effective treatment option for GSM in survivors of breast cancer with minimal systemic absorption. According to NAMS, treatment with low-dose vaginal estrogen therapy, or DHEA, can be considered if symptoms persist after an initial trial of non-hormonal options. Oh, don't click off yet. Don't leave yet. Don't leave yet, because there's always an exception. Oh, see, if you stop listening to that, if your buddy just stopped listening, you got to tell them to listen back because they're going to miss an important point. Remember that anytime you give estrogen to a survivor of breast cancer, make sure that their oncologist is aware. And there's also more concern for women who are on aromatase inhibitors. That data is a little sketchy, all right? So as long as they're not on aromatase inhibitors, vaginal estrogen therapy should be okay. Now that we're at the end of the podcast, I just want to drop a little clinical pearl about endometrial cancer. Now remember, the focus of this session was breast cancer, but endometrial cancer is so intimately tied to this because again, these poor women are going to go through menopause and have vasomotor symptoms. Well, hopefully not, but likely will. And so are they doomed as well? Those are the two caveats, the two catches where hormone therapy is is almost withdrawn or not even offered because of fear of these issues. Well, we've already tackled breast cancer and all the caveats and nuances there. But what about hormone therapy after endometrial cancer? Well, although hormone therapy is generally contraindicated in women with any estrogen-responsive cancers, hormone therapy may be used to treat bothersome menopausal symptoms in women who had low-grade stage 1 endometrial cancer after hysterectomy. Is that wild or what? I mean, I learned previous history of endometrial cancer. That's forever no-go for hormone therapy. But that's why we're doing this podcast. Information, as we say in our tagline, moves fast. So as long as they had low-grade stage 1 endometrial cancer and they had their hysterectomy, seems to be okay after discussion with their oncologist. Meta-analysis of retrospective studies and one RCT do not identify an adverse risk of recurrence in survivors in these kind of cancers. A woman's oncologist should be included in that shared decision-making process. Systemic hormone therapy, however, is not advised with high-grade, advanced-stage endometrial malignancies or with endometrial stromal sarcomas or leiomyosarcomas because these have insufficient evidence regarding their rate of recurrence with hormone therapy. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. Again, I think I'm pretty much done with this NAMS review. I want to go back to my OB topics. But it's good to, again, to be familiar with what's out there. By the way, thank you again for your message that you send out. Somebody sent me a message that said, hey, uh, how, how do you prepare for these things? How do you get these podcasts going? And I got to be honest, I, I mean, I love it. I love doing it. I got to find time to do it because my schedule stays pretty darn full. But it is one of my passions. But I got to tell you, it's a lot of work. I mean, for this podcast, for example, I took the NAMS data. I combined it with ACOG. I looked at the American Cancer Society and the National Cancer Network and combined all that to come up with this podcast. Overall, this 15, 20-minute podcast, whoever, however long it comes out in post-production, it, it's taken me about an hour and a half to do. Is that wild? I mean, I'm telling you, I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of work. 
But again, it's definitely what I feel I'm being called to do. So thank you for your messages. It's just a sneak peek as to how we get these things done. It's not just one piece of information. We try to make this thing very well-rounded, very solid, very evidence-heavy so that you can do what you do and do it better. So anyway, thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.